Hey there, listeners! Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, and I'm on the phone with Brian. And this week, we're going to be covering the 2010 horror film *Insidious*, directed by James Wan, written by Lee Wanell, and starring Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, and Barbara Hershey. In this film, a husband gaslights his wife, who is trying to save their son who is at risk of being possessed by some demonic spirits. If you are new to our show, we're going to have a spoiler-free discussion at the top of the episode before taking a quick break, and then we'll dive into the plot, the spoilers, and our review. We're covering this film because part five is coming out, uh, I believe, in July. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, we're going to have a bonus episode later this month uh, where we'll also review the sequel, Insidious Chapter 2. So keep an eye out for that, uh, and if you're interested in it, feel free in joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrormovieclub. Is that the right link, Brian? Yeah, that link works, or you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the big orange Patreon button. And uh, we want to give a shout-out to some of our newer patrons, so thank you for supporting us. Johnny C., Aman Dank, <laughs> Matt M., Eileen P., McKenna G., Bentley L., Sarah F., Alyssa M., Kevin R. and Matt S. Thank you all very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for supporting the show. Yeah. So this film, uh, for me, it had been a long time since I'd seen this one. When was the last time you saw this? Same. It's been many years. Right? Yeah, I feel like uh, I, did, I remember seeing it in theaters, but I don't remember seeing it after that. Uh, you saw it at home at some point? I think I saw it at home at some point, but it's been nearly a decade, I think. Yeah, yeah, same. And uh, what a decade it has been for James Wan. Uh, this is this guy's so huge now, um, and I think this was his early days. So he was coming off hot on the Saw series. He also had two movies before this, like Dead Silence and something else. I, I haven't seen either of those. Have you? I recently watched Dead Silence for the first time. Oh, okay. It's cool. a little silly, but I found it enjoyable. Yeah. I think that there's a, a brand of James Wan that we'll talk about in a bit, which uh, going back to some of his early work, you start to see like the uh, early roots of it. Um, yes. Yeah. There's uh, some s- silliness vibes. But yeah, since doing that and then uh, doing this in 2010, there's obviously a whole series of Insidious films. Uh, he's done The Conjurings, uh, the malignant film that we reviewed uh, a few years ago, and then this year he produced Megan. So yeah, this guy's been huge on horror. And uh, w- what are your thoughts on him? Like, Do you feel like he's one of the top horror directors out there? Yeah, Aquaman and Furious 7. Did you mention those? Oh, I didn't get into his non-horror, non-horror work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about, I think he's one of the... He's undoubtedly one of... Undoubtedly? Undoubtedly? Undoubtedly. <laughs> no one can deny. He's indubitably <laughs> one of the biggest horror directors of all time. I mean, just looking at the money that this guy makes. Like, yeah. This movie had a budget of $1.5 million dollars. And a box office of $100.1 million. That's insane. So it's like, yeah. And then Saw had similar box office numbers. Uh, Conjuring had a $20 million budget and made $319 million at the box office. Insidious 2 made similar numbers to this one. Yeah. He's made a ton of money. So he's one of the biggest horror directors ever. One of the best? Debatable. He's got a specific (laughs) brand. He does. Uh, he does it. Uh, it's yeah. It's interesting that he's kind of. I like. I feel like he's stepped away a little bit more from horror in the last few years to branch out into some of these other movies and superhero Marvel stuff. Uh, but yeah, he's he definitely. I feel like he was carrying the horror genre for Hollywood's part in like the later two thousands, early like twenty ten. I think uh, we have him to thank. I mean, and even regardless of what you think of his films, like horror has become more mainstream. It's become less frowned upon, thought of more favorably by studios as far as its profitability as well. So he's undoubtedly a part of that. So we have him to thank for that. And uh, yeah, but it's so funny looking, but like watching this, uh, watching Insidious 2 recently, watching Dead Silence 2, I'm not sure how I was surprised by the zaniness of Malignant. Like... Oh yeah, these movies are zany too. They're just a little more subtly. So yeah, I almost think when we watched these films, like back when they came out, like 2010, 2013, um, 
maybe uh, it still felt like a really original, that part of him or like his uh, brand in these films. And now when we see things like Malignant or like that Last Conjuring film, um, which I know he didn't direct, but yeah, I think we're picking up on, on the zaniness that when you go back, it was like obviously there, but it didn't jump out when we saw it the first time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Maybe our palettes are a bit more refined these days, too. That could be it, too. The other thing is, uh, yeah, he had such a big influence that maybe now uh, he's become like a, uh, he's created like almost like a set of expectation or tropes that uh, like like jump scares and, um, you know, the, the type of suspense he builds is like so common now because of the huge impact he had in those years that I wonder if we don't give him uh, enough credit for what he's created. Right, right. It's become so stereotypical now that it's hard to go back and look at his earlier stuff with fresh eyes. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other thing is, I don't know how much of it is just him, because uh, it looks like there are a lot of names that like you see throughout the Saw franchise and Insidious. So the, the writer, uh, Lee Wanell, uh, who would go on to direct uh, The Invisible Man, which everyone loved, but he wrote all the Saw films, then he was here on Insidious. Um, and then even like the producers, like you had Jason bloom in his early days uh is it or jason blum right it's blum yeah yeah and and oren pelly the guy from paranormal activity is is here as a producer and and you see their names like attached to a lot of these projects together so it makes me kind of think this is like a cohort of people just like knocking things out of the park it is really a cohort for sure and lee wanell yeah it's just kind of a big revolving door and lee wanell directed insidious three um he also patrick wilson is going to direct the new conjuring film oh wow yeah uh patrick wilson who stars in insidious yeah i didn't realize there was gonna be another conjuring that'd be like the fourth or fifth or i'm sorry i'm sorry i said conjuring i meant insidious so the the fifth insidious film which is coming out in a couple of months is directed by patrick wilson oh man that's interesting uh i thought it was gonna be james wan for some reason so uh yeah thanks thanks for correcting me before i said that that's that's wild uh is that his uh directorial debut it is, yeah. And then, so let's go through the franchise. <laughs> Insidious in 2010, then there's Insidious Chapter 2 in 2013, which is a sequel. Also directed and by in, James Wan, right? Also directed by James Wan. Insidious Chapter 3 from 2015, a prequel, and that is Lee Wanell's directorial debut. There's Insidious The Last Key from 2018, another prequel, which is second in order of chronology. And then there's Insidious the Red Door coming up in a couple of months in, I think, July of 2023. And that is Patrick Wilson's directorial debut. And that is a sequel to Insidious Chapter 2. So the (laughs) chronology of the films is Insidious Chapter 3, Insidious the Last Key, which is the fourth film, then Insidious, Insidious Chapter 2, Insidious the Red Door. Yeah. That's kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think he's unique in that way. Uh, I, I don't know how much of that to attribute to James Wan, but um, with this, The Conjuring, The Nuns, um, it, it Saws, obviously, I don't know how much he had an impact there, but he's there's so much like world building going on with, with these movies that I feel like that's not something you see too often in horror films, and, and this guy kind of brought to, to horror. It really is a, a bit of a its own world. And to... Uh, echo what you said about having this whole crew that's kind of in the mix on this. He used Joseph Bashara for the music for both of these films. He used John R. Leonetti as the cinematographer um, who worked with him on many other films as well, Insidious, The Conjuring, Insidious Chapter 2. And then he would go on to direct Annabelle. So mm, it's yeah. just a whole big cohort, like you said. <laughs> a lot of networking going on and yeah. Pats on yeah. the backs. Uh, <laughs> damn, Patrick Wilson uh, directing, and, and he's another name that like shows up in another uh, a number of, uh, of James Wan's films. Uh, and uh, speaking of the guy who does the music that you mentioned, he shows up in this film as well. And so does Lee Wanell, right? Like they both have parts acting in this film. Yeah. So Joseph Bashara is the lipstick demon <laughs> in the Insidious <laughs> in this movie, and he also had roles as like ghoulish or demonic villains in the conjuring franchise he was Bathsheba in the conjuring and Valak in the conjuring 2 
he's a demon in the Annabelle films. Wow. But then, yeah, he's scored Insidious and Insidious 2. It's just yeah. fucking... That's hilarious. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's playing musical chairs here. Uh, yeah. And Patrick Wilson, what, what's your read on this guy? Because I, I, I mostly know him from these films. I've seen him in like one or two other films, which weren't that great. I, I feel like he's kind of been stereotyped into like these types of roles, but I, I don't know. Are you a fan of his? You know, I've got mixed feelings about him. I think sometimes he really works and sometimes he doesn't. He's like a very unique brand. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if he's a bad actor that sometimes works out <laughs> yeah. or a good actor who, I don't know. Like, it's almost a Keanu Reeves thing where you're like, he's kind of wooden and awkward, but is that what fits the role <laughs> yeah. or is that just him? Is that the role? Yeah. <laughs> like, it works to me in Watchmen. Because he's like kind of a nerdy type. Oh, yeah. I forgot he's in that. Right. He he also kind of works as a um, vaguely intimidating person. Like, uh, did you ever see In the Tall Grass? Yeah, I did. He was in that? He was, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't remember. He worked well on that. Okay. Yeah. And it's kind of freaky. I, I think uh, he gets into that aspect a little bit more in the in the part two of this. Uh, so yeah, it's it's cool. He he's got some variation to his uh, his uh, acting. Yeah, and like you said, they worked together many times. So he was in Insidious one and two. He's in three of the Conjuring films. He's in Aquaman and an upcoming Aquaman sequel. Wow. So yep. They yep. worked together at least six times. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are buds. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, okay. Yeah. I guess before we dive into some more background here, uh, seeing that it's been a long time since you've seen this film, uh, do you remember like being a big fan of it or any of your early thoughts? Was it just meh? I remember being a big fan of it, but not being like, that's one of my favorite horror movies. Okay. I, I remember liking it and having fun, Yeah, but not, uh, necessarily putting it on a pedestal. Okay. Yeah, I, I always kind of held it in high regard. Uh, I remember like the comedic elements of it with the uh, guys who come, the paranormal crew was a lot of fun and interesting to watch. But yeah, that was a long time ago and it'll be interesting to see if uh, a lot of that holds up. Sure. Um, other background here. Uh, so you mentioned the budget, huge success. Rotten Tomatoes score of 66%. You mentioned all the sequels. We talked about who produced it. Um, hmm, I think that was all the background I had. What? Anything else you got? Um, let's see, you know, um, I talked about how, we talked about, um, what's his name? Joseph Bashara not only was a lipstick demon, but also scored the film. Mm-hmm. Um, just wanted to mention he also scored The Conjuring, Annabelle, Malignant, Aquaman. Yeah. And a few other of the movies in some of those franchises. As well as like, uh, Tales of Halloween, VHS Viral. He's like all over yeah. horror movies. Yeah, he's a pretty prolific composer. Mm-hmm. Um, we should also mention that Lynn Shay, who's in this film, is a bit of a horror, uh, low-key horror queen. She was the teacher in A Nightmare on Elm Street when Nancy falls asleep in class. She's been in many other horror films, including the Critters franchise, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, the Ouija films, or Ouija. Uh, she's also been in some comedic films, like mm-hmm. Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin. I ne- it never I never put two and two together, but she's the lady in Kingpin that makes the uh, lewd gesture. Oh, you remember that scene? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, <laughs> that's her. Uh, wait, who is she in this film? She is the medium. Oh, Elise. She is Elise. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Oh man, yeah, I didn't realize she had that that kind of backlog. Yeah, she sure does. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's most of the. Um, most of the background. This is a PG-13 movie. Oh, man. I didn't pick up on that while we were watching it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of Juan's goal with this was to prove he could make a successful horror film without relying on the violence of Saw, which is kind of funny to think of now because you think James Wan, you don't think violent horror films. Yeah. But that was his reputation after Saw, and this was very much an era, you know, the aughts. Of, like, gore. The torture porn era. So people, right. Juan's name got... Tacked, lumped into that group, even though not necessarily, you know, that that Saw franchise went in another direction. Uh, and he, he is maybe low key bemoaned, like losing control of that franchise and mm-hmm. letting it go a different way. I don't know about bemoan, but he expressed a desire uh, with this franchise to kind of 
keep it in his control, which is why he directed the second one. Yeah. Yeah. I always uh, forget that he did the first Saw. And then uh, I, I was also surprised that that was the only Saw that he did. Because uh, I, I, I assumed if he did the first one in like how that series kind of grew and like uh, got gorier through the years, um, I, I assumed it would have like a similar creator behind it. But I'm surprised to, to see that he stepped away after the first one. Yeah, you know, we should cover more of that franchise. I don't know the whole story there. I'm pretty sure Darren Lynn Bozeman did the second or third or maybe both. So Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't think he even had any producer role in there. Don't don't bother correcting me, listeners, if I'm wrong. I have <laughs> no, I think you're no right. knowledge of that. So <laughs> Yeah, I don't see all the other saws like on his uh thing, which it's crazy. You, you drop such a big successful movie and then you, you walk away from that franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean he he was a young director at that point and probably didn't really think about like staking his claim or making sure he was probably just happy to to have it being made and right wasn't necessarily like okay what's the business end of all this and sure yeah yeah so it's, it's cool to see him branch out from that style of horror though and bring supernatural back to the theaters yeah um this was also i think considered in the public consciousness of many horror film fans especially younger fans, modern horror fans, is one of the scariest horror films out there. No. Do you think it has that perception or no? Uh, I hadn't heard that. I mean, I, I always assumed it's like legit and like definitely scary. Uh, I don't know if I ever like put it in like the ring type territory or even like a, a sinister I would, I'd put it higher. Um, yeah, I'm not sure like every millennial and Gen Z or is being like, yeah, insidious top five scariest movies, but I think yeah. it has a reputation for being scary. Yep. Wanted to vet that with you though and see if that was your yeah, general have... perception. Yeah, I, I didn't. Did you have that perception? I did. I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. You got scared when you saw this. Oh, oh, I mean like I didn't. Uh, yeah, sure. I got scared when I saw it. I didn't yeah. consider it one of the scariest movies ever, but that was my understanding of its place. Got it. In the fandom, cool. at least the younger fandom. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely, I, I could see that with The Conjuring. And I, to some ways, like, yeah, in some ways, this kind of feels like a, a preamble to The Conjuring. Like, I, I feel like he sets up a lot of things that become familiar in that franchise later. Yeah, sure. I agree. Yep. Um, you got a, the Ohio Connection for us? Or? Yeah, you know, I'm just realizing I never put the Ohio Connection in my notes, but let me just find that in my email. Old Reliable Alex has got that for us. Nice. Okay. Our Ohio connection, as always, is done by our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're in the Northeast Ohio area, this is the perfect time to go to Jukebox. The weather's getting nice. They've got a great patio, great drinks, and great food. Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. And Alex says, Insidious is a supernatural horror film about a married couple whose boy inexplicably becomes a vessel for a variety of demonic entities. It was directed by James Wan, and the cinematography was performed by his longtime collaborator and fellow filmmaker John R. Leonetti. Leonetti was also cinematographer on feature films such as Child's Play 3, The Mask with Jim Carrey, and Mortal Kombat. He began his filmmaking career with Mortal Kombat Annihilation and has gone on to direct The Butterfly Effect 2, Annabelle, and Wish Upon. In 1999, he served as cinematographer for the teen comedy film Detroit Rock City about four teenage boys in a Kiss tribute band who try to see their idols in a concert in Detroit. The film is set and begins in 1978, Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, man. Great throwback. Uh, I, I used to love that film growing up. Did you ever see that? Me too, man. I saw it in the theater with some friends, and I was like, "This is my new favorite movie." I think I saw it a couple times in the theater, but oh, I haven't. That's great. Haven't seen it in decades. Oh, I should man. watch it. Again. We should. We should watch that sometime. <laughs> Classic, dude. John R. Leonetti. I mean, he had quite the career, but he filmed some probably childhood staples of some of our fellow elder millennials, like especially some comedy staples. So oh, he shot yeah. Child's Play three, not a comedy, but he shot Hot Shots Part two, The oh. Mask. Nice. Uh, Mortal Kombat, Spy Hard, Detroit Rock City, Damn. Joe Dirt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Then he started working with Juan on, on Dead Silence. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And it went from there. Damn, that's impressive. What a guy. So he's a cinematographer yeah. here? What a guy. He yeah. is. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, that, that's quite a legacy. Great. Well, anything else or should we get into the plot? Let's do this. All right. Uh, hey, before we do though, I, I just saw my neighbor stepped outside. You, you mind if I, uh, I, I, I gotta go do something really quick. Can I, can I call you right back? 
Yeah, sure. Go for it. All right. I'll be right back. Thanks. Hey, Brian, sorry about that. I'm back. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a little bit vague. What, what's going on? You want to tell me? Oh, yeah. I like to... I got this thing going on with my neighbor where I, every time they step out of the house, I dress up as like a kid and I go and I dance around the living room while I like play old records uh, so I can creep them out when they look through their windows and then I, I disappear. It's, it's really freaking them out. It's a, I'm, enjoy, I'm trying to get them to move, so I think it's working so far. <laughs> nice, man. Yeah. Hopefully some better neighbors move in. I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, this, <laughs> yeah. the shtick always works. So, yeah, <laughs> cool. Good to know. Yeah. Keep, keep I'm going to keep that in mind for myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a good, good trick. So this movie kicks off with a scene of a young boy sleeping while the camera pans around the bedroom and we see through the window there's a ghost woman watching him from outside the window. Uh, and then the these violins and the strings kick in and the title comes on the screen. Uh, what'd you think of this opening and, uh, the opening credits? I was not a huge fan. It was just like all very disorienting and weird. It seemed like the goal was mostly to put you in a creepy space and not necessarily to like introduce you to anything. It was just kind of a generic, here's what a spooky intro would look like to a horror movie. And there was some blatant CGI in there too like footsteps appearing on the floor and stuff. So Mm. a little generic and uh, wasn't a huge fan of it. But what did you think? Yeah, I I hear you. Uh, You know, it it almost reminds me of like when you go see a Blumhouse movie now, like the opening, there's like some creepy stuff going on. Yeah, (laughs) it was basically like that, (laughs) them workshopping that. Exactly. Yeah. Just like a scary scene, like not much like story going on or anything. Uh, But I I do like like how quickly we're introduced to one of the things that I think this movie is known for is like that string uh, music that kicks in with the title. Uh, It's I think it's a very unique uh, in in, uh, a distinct piece for this film and the franchise. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And it's funny because like, I feel like that's kind of a cheap it's called an audio sting when you get a jump scare and it's like like with the strings or an abrasive sound yeah and there was a quote from uh i'll save it for the patreon episode but there was a quote from the joseph bashar who did the score who's like yeah james is big on the uh audio stings it felt like a low-key <laughs> backdoor insult or something oh that's hilarious yeah yeah i i think uh th- that's one of the tools that's i think used throughout this movie it often. is in the toolkit, that it 100%. Is. Yep. Uh, I also enjoyed the opening credits, though. It's just like uh, kind of, I think similar to like what you described with the opening scene. It's just like a scene and like a chair moving by itself or a scene and there's like a figure in the background. And it, uh, yeah, it's just like showing those like typical scenes of like a possessed house almost. And yeah, it, kind of fun to like be looking for the, the ghost a little bit. But th- did you like that part? Yeah, I guess it is kind of fun to play that game. Lee Wanell really, you know learned from this and and or, or maybe was very much a part of it as well but you see that so much in the invisible man when you're just like i'm looking for stuff oh, i see yeah. i see typical things on the screen but i'm looking for something to like move a, or exactly. a face or whatever yeah so right. that is a bit of a fun where's waldo type situation but <laughs> i also thought it was pretty generic okay yeah yeah definitely generic i one thing though going through this film uh because I, I i was like feel like it's pretty generic as well but i kept trying to remind myself like was this generic for 2010 or is it mm. generic now because James Wan has like blown up Hollywood uh what do you yeah what do you think was it I generic? think that's a, a great question to ask and a necessary question to ask and a question I feel like I can't answer just yeah I without know. a time machine I know it's hard to put ourselves in the in the in our shoes back then yeah uh but yeah so then we, then we meet our main characters who are Renee and Josh this married couple who they seem to have an endless supply of kids. I feel like every time she turns around, there's like another kid that they have. Uh, so they've just moved into this uh, new house, and we learn that Josh is a teacher and Renee is an inspiring musician. Uh, things take a turn for the worse when one morning, one of their children, Dalton, doesn't wake up from his sleep. The doctors say that he's in some kind of coma, but uh, don't know exactly what to make of it. 
and uh, this puts pressure on Renee and Josh's relationship as time goes on and Josh er, and Dalton doesn't wake up. Uh, what do you think of the setup, the characters, uh, what we're being introduced to? Um, you know, mixed feelings. I feel like I I'm not. Um, if anybody is to blame here, it's Patrick Wilson. I like Rose Byrne, and I've enjoyed Patrick Wilson in some things, but they don't have any chemistry, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think if it's anybody's fault, it's Patrick Wilson's, or maybe it's the fault of casting. Like. I just don't think these two click. Um, so I wasn't necessarily on board with their relationship, but at the same time, you know, they put in some effort to make sure some boxes were checked and then we got to know them and the situation and everything. But what did you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair critique. Uh, I, their relationship, I, I like that they take the time to kind of show them trying to have a relationship. Like there's a fun scene of them in bed and like Josh is like, oh, you should write a song about me and trying to make jokes uh, about it. Um, or like, I, I think what's also coming in the way is like they're going through a move right now. So she's like on the phone while he's like rushing out to work. So there's like some stress that's pulling them apart and not giving us too much of their relationship building. But also to your point, yeah, Patrick Wilson can be like kind of stiff compared to uh, Rose Byrne, who I think, uh, yeah, it just seems like more human at times than Patrick does. Yeah, and and I think that one of the things that strikes me is like we cut from Dalton asleep and his dad trying to wake him up, Patrick Wilson, uh, like right to the doctor's explanation that he's in a coma, mm-hmm. but they've never seen anything like this before. The dad, Patrick Wilson, isn't even crying. And Rose Byrne isn't nearly as much of a, a wreck yeah. as you would expect a mother to be having just learned that her child <laughs> is in his unexplained coma. Yeah. <laughs> like, it all happens very fast, and it just makes me think and reflect on some of other, some of Juan's other films, that he does not really nail the human element of possibly any of his stories. It's mm. almost like someone told him what humans are like and he's going <laughs> off of that. Like, it's a bit robotic. Yeah. Um, and the, back to the chemistry thing, like, and yeah, maybe it's Patrick Wilson's fault. One strength of the Conjuring films is no matter how hokey it may be and how hokey their relationship is, Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson have chemistry. Like, mm. you can hate them as a fictional couple. You can hate them as the cu- real couple they're based on. Mm-hmm. But, like, something about it works on a bit of a cheesy level, but it works. And, sure. and these two just, they don't. They don't yeah. work. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. Uh, yeah, that uh, that uh, him and Vera seem like a much more natural couple than these two. Yeah. Uh, I, I can tell if it's, like, maybe he's younger here. I mean, this was, like, three years before that, so maybe he's not that great of an actor. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, the human element, yeah, definitely rushed on, in terms of like them, though I think you see more of that coming from Rose later on when there's scenes of her like getting, uh, being told by the doctor, like how to take care of Dalton and stuff. And, uh, I, I, I got some feelings of that later on. You didn't, you didn't pick up on that? I think if there are moments of humanity, they come from Rose's performance. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, sometimes maybe from the writing. But uh, I would yep. credit her more so than than sure. Lee or James. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. That's a skating uh, comment. Skating critique of two of the most successful filmmakers of a modern era. I'm this, sure it'll cut them like daggers when they listen to I this know. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, you're gonna be getting some emails from them. Uh, and I don't mean to. I don't mean to rake them over the coals. But I. I just. I feel like that's true. I don't think they get it. I yep. think Lee Wanell learned a lot and really developed something like the invisible man feels much more mature mm-hmm. than some of his earlier screenplays but uh <laughs> i think Juan's still <laughs> still <laughs> cranking out his uh his unique brand of of this yeah. whatever this is yeah a part of me just feels like he doesn't have time for, to like uh he, he doesn't like slow down the film yeah or, uh, it's not the it's not the his bread and butter yeah, he, yeah. I, maybe he just doesn't care yep yep uh, that, that's the sense I get. Uh, the other thing, uh, originality wise, like I remember when I saw this, I, I thought it was great, like a haunted house type of setup here, like an old house. They just moved in there. Um, but now looking back, it is pretty unoriginal, right? Like this is like Amityville horror, like straight up, right? Like a fa- family moving into a new house. 
It's so. very much Amityville horror. It's very much poltergeist. Mm, yeah, um, there are like some things that seem like they're almost homages or straight ripoffs of poltergeist right. that we'll get to later in the plot. But as we discussed in the Conjuring episode, we purported that there was a boom in haunted house movies around this time because of the housing crisis. <laughs> I, <love laughs> I don't know if we, I don't know if we're just blowing smoke up our own asses with that theory. Yeah, uh, mostly me blowing smoke up my own ass and yours. But um, <laughs> bring, bring your asses, I'll blow smoke up all of them. It tickles. Uh, That's good. <laughs> yeah. You, and then fill out this survey to tell me what you thought of it. <laughs> yeah, Did it tickle? Exactly. Um, what the hell was I talking about with the asses? Okay, so <laughs> maybe this is commentary on the housing crisis. You know, you're you're underwater on your house. Like, you, you can't afford it. You can't really move out. You don't know what to do. And we talked about how the haunted house boom in the late 70s was kind of a representation of the falling apart of the nuclear family, the recession, and just the American dream not really working out like that generation was promised. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know if that's happening here or if Oren Pelly and the likes of him got lucky with Paranormal Activity being a giant hit in 2007, and they ran with it. So Mm -hmm. coincidentally, we had a bunch of haunted house movies around the same time as the housing crisis and the financial crisis yeah, just yeah overlap. might just be a coincidence sure yeah but i mean like uh i think the financial stress angle like you sense that in this film you sense it in the conjuring it was obviously there in like amityville horror uh i don't feel like that was there so much in paranormal activity uh so that's that's something i think that's unique to these films yeah i mean they move in this film and then they find that just because they move their their problems aren't solved so yeah i don't know if that says anything about the theme Yep. That I'm purporting or not. Okay, okay, TBD. Um, so things... <laughs> Keep your asses on standby for, this <laughs> yeah, sm- for more this smoke. smoke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so three months go by. Dalton's still in this coma, but uh, he's at home now. Uh, Renee is still trying to write uh, songs. And, and I think that, yeah, maybe this is where we're getting like that human performance from her where uh, she's like obviously distressed or like she's not, you know, having fun writing songs anymore. Um, but she hears someone shouting on the baby monitor and runs upstairs. Uh, but everything seems OK with the baby. That night, though, they hear a knock on the door and the security alarm goes off. Josh runs downstairs, but there's no one there. Renee hears the baby crying and she goes to the nursery where she sees a figure standing behind the crib. She freaks out and calls to Josh, who comes up, but by the time he gets there, there's no one in the room, uh, and, and they, there's no sign of any intrusion. And then a few nights later, Renee wakes up in the middle of the night and sees the same figure pacing around in her bedroom and screams for Josh. Again, he comes up, and they don't find anyone, and she's like begging him to believe her and convinces Josh finally that they need to leave the house. What did you think about all these uh, scare sequences happening? I thought these were pretty good, actually, specifically when the person is in the baby's room uh, and when she's hearing voices on the monitor. That was reminiscent of the vocals over the phone in Black Christmas. Oh, yeah. Kind of the Um, muttering. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I was pretty freaked out in those scenes. And then when Patrick Wilson slash Josh is perusing the house, like to see, is there an intruder? Is something wrong? That's done pretty well in terms of cinematography and just how it's all mapped out like okay he's gonna come into this room he's not gonna know and then the alarm's gonna go off again yeah uh, that was scripted directed shot well to make that pretty freaky but what did you think i agree i think these sequences were like well choreographed between the sound and like the images that you're seeing and like the quiet to loud uh jump scares uh yeah i thought it all works really well uh another aspect i was wondering if you picked up uh any sense of this but um so far it's only rose who's like experiencing this or renee uh character who's experiencing this um and josh is like kind of hesitant to believe her is any of you i mean i I know you've seen this film before but uh, as the audience like do you think there's a sense here that perhaps this is a mother who is like in distress because of like what her son's going through no, I leave that to you to read into the psychological <laughs> horror of something that isn't psychological horror. Yeah. Uh, that didn't cross my mind. But yeah, there is an interesting dynamic there in that Renee is the one noticing most of this stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, no one else is seeing it. Uh, she's hearing things, uh, and uh, yeah, she's having a hard time getting for people to uh, to believe her. So I, I, yeah, I wonder if like they're trying to play up her as like uh, maybe this is all going on in her head or like some psychological horror. But um, yeah, maybe not. I, yeah, I feel like they don't right. leave, lean into that heavy enough to make it make a point out of that. If I take a men, women, chainsaws angle, it's not unusual for like the woman to be more in touch with the spiritual side of things and the man to be the rational doubting figure mm, okay. um, but then they kind of switch men women chainsaw roles later in the film so we'll get into that too okay interesting so gender roles at play here yeah okay uh Why so not? they yeah they then move into a new house uh and now josh's mom also enters the picture and is helping them out they think they're in the clear now but one day while renee is taking out the trash she sees uh, a figure dressed as a kid in the house uh, dancing around to this record that's playing this old kind of uh, nursery tune. Tiptoe uh, tip through the tulips. Yeah, that's actually by, kind of a, uh, What's his face? Oh, I can't remember his name. Oh, But go on. Yeah, it's kind of like a creepy song. I hadn't heard that one. It's creepy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she runs into the house to find this kid that's dancing around in there. Um, but, uh, the kid like runs by her and freaks her out. Um, he pops out from, from a closet or something. So, uh, she decides to call her priest. And at this point, Josh's mom also comes over and she tells Josh and Renee that she had this dream that she was in the house the night before and she saw in Dalton's room, there was a demon with a red face. And then we get, I think one of the more famous jump scares of this movie, uh, as they're sitting around the dining table, she looks at Josh, and behind him is this demon with red face. Uh, what do you think of like these two scares and uh, the, this the sequence? I thought this was where we see one of the more human elements from Renee Rose Burns' character. So when that kid like pops out of the armoire at the end of the tiptoe through the tulips sequence, she just collapses and cries, which is just oh, like yeah. a. I fucking give up with all this shit. Like, yeah. we moved. It's not over. It's less scared at this point than just, like, exhausted and desperate and having no idea where to go from here. So right. if that was scripted, bravo. You, you got the human element, guys. And then uh, good performance from her. Yeah. I You know, I'm going to push back a little bit on that human element thing because I, I think she makes a few comments. Like, when they move into this house... And Josh's mom is like talking to Renee. There's like a conversation in the kitchen, and she says something to the effect of like, uh, like, like she doesn't, she's not confident that like people believe her, and that she's kind of like uh, feeling very vulnerable about like what she's seen and like uh, how she's exposed herself. Maybe like people might think she's crazy, and like you have this scene where like Josh's mom is like uh, assuring her that you know she believes her and that it's it's been a hard time, and then. A few scenes before, too, you have uh, an argument between her and Josh where Josh is kind of like hanging out at school and avoiding coming home. And they have a confrontation where she's like, you know, you always kind of uh, avoid confrontation. Uh, you know, you have always been doing this thing. So I thought you had some like uh, pretty emotional conversations peppered in throughout the this this part. Yeah, good counterpoints, props. Not only were those emotional conversations, but they were so emotional that Josh, during one of them, used the F-bomb in the, the PG-13 <laughs> movie's F-bomb budget was used up on that oh, scene. Yeah. But yeah, between Renee and Josh's mom, she's Josh's mom is basically like, look, you are going through something, and whatever you need to do to make that easier is like, you do it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, okay. You you make good counterpoints. I have no counter argument. Good good <laughs> okay. support of the human element from yeah. the script. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a few are in there, but I I also agree with you that a lot of that is being carried by Rose Byrne and like not not so much the other characters. Sure. Uh, so at this point, Renee calls in these paranormal experts uh, after hearing this demon thing from uh, Josh's mom, and we get some great banter between the technicians who've come. Uh, they're taking photos, and one of them sees. Uh, in one of the photos, like some, uh, I think like two women ghosts making like uh, some crazy faces. So then their boss, Elise, comes and she's a psychic and she also observes a demon hanging out in Dalton's room. She explains to Josh and Renee that 
Dalton actually isn't in a coma. He's actually astral projecting himself where he thinks he's in a dream, but his spirit is actually traveling. And this time he's gone to a place called the Further and he's gotten stuck there. And his physical body, which is vacant at the moment because his spirit's not in there, is attracting ghosts and demons that want to live in the physical world. Um, is that did I describe that correctly? Yeah, I think you nailed that, man. Good yeah. job. I think, uh, yeah, that's a pretty complicated plot turn here. Did, did you think like did that come out of nowhere for you, or what did you think? Boy, wait till we get to Insidious too. If we want to talk <laughs> complicated plot turns, I know <laughs> it requires some like paying attention, some suspension of disbelief, and some buy-in to be like. Okay, this yeah. is how it works in this movie, and you better be on board because we're gonna go places with that <laughs> yeah, in exactly. in the next one, right? Right down the further, <laughs> right? Yeah, I got to take uh, note of this. This is gonna be important later. <laughs> yeah, I actually I think it makes sense, and um, it's a bit of a stretch, but they kind of support it. it may, it's very exposition heavy, and they have to explain it and yep. spell it out, but. She does that for them. It makes sense in the plot for her, the medium, to explain it to them. This is a lot like Poltergeist, right? With these two guys coming in, the two technicians. Um, at one point, one of them even gets, this is later on, hit in the head and grabs a steak from the oh, fridge yeah. and puts it on his face. Like, we've got a paranormal technician helping the medium and interacting with a steak. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a very Poltergeist heavy. We've seen this before. And then, like, you know, the daughter in that is kind of, like, lost in the TV in this other world. And they're like, you got to, like, go in there and get her and stuff. And yeah, that is, the further is very much that. Like, damn, they are piggybacking off of that and giving it more explanation and making some rules around it. So wow, yeah. I think it's impossible to not see a, a poltergeist influence there, either homage or ripoff. Dude, uh, yeah. whatever you want to call it so yeah wow that's a uh, i mean i think yeah the, the steak thing kind of makes it seem like it's an uh an homage. homage yeah right but um damn yeah that's uh that's like right on the nose on the on the plot that's crazy i didn't, I didn't pick up on that yeah how did, how did that come to be that you put a steak on it why <laughs> putting a raw <laughs> steak on your injury instead of just ice yeah yeah i know a pack of peas or something yeah i never heard of a right? just a raw meat on your face that's got to have uh some health uh concerns with it it makes more sense before the proliferation of plastic right yeah because now if you want to put ice on yourself you need some sort of like plastic yeah container sure. right sure so a steak makes sense back in the day but you would think at this time <laughs> you'd put it in a bag or as something like yeah. wrap a towel around it yeah and and this is modern day right like this, this is, is a, modern day there's no yeah. excuse here right right yeah so yeah that's a, that's like a, yeah maybe an obvious reference to the poltergeist and he's just wearing it on his sleeve yeah right uh so they try to do the seance and elise wears this crazy gas mask uh, that she uses to speak to Josh or, or speak to uh, one of the technicians. Oh, I guess speak to Dalton in the other side. Uh, yes. And then uh, a technician writes it all down. What do you think of that mask? I thought that was a cool visual. It is a cool visual. Dude, we've got to cover House on Haunted Hill from 1999 at some point because I really think that movie influenced horror for the next 10 years or so. Not only... So that gas mask thing is like a very steampunk vibe or something, mm -hmm. which felt very prominent in that House on Haunted Hill movie. But that movie also had these like glitchy, jump-cutty ghouls where like they move, they have a herky-jerky motion and they're like suddenly closer in front of you than they were before. Uh -huh. You see it a lot with the ghouls in this film, yeah. those creepy ladies who just like, the they smile. jump cut yeah. to a smile. Like right. it's an instant smile. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately came from like Japanese ghost movies or maybe was influenced by, I'm not totally sure, but okay. anyway, I, I felt some echoes of House on Haunted Hill from 1999. Damn, in this movie. wow. We're just like ripping, uh, they were, uh, there's like no originality in this film. Pretty much. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean that like that, but there's, there's definitely influences I see. Yeah, yeah, damn. All right. So uh, yeah, they do the seance. She's talking to Dalton. And she realizes, and, and uh, hears Dalton say that he's stuck and he needs help. He's stuck in the further. 
but unfortunately, the seance unleashes all these spirits uh, and demons, ghosts, and all all, all these people, uh, entities uh, attack the group, um, and they're like pretty strong and like punching people who go flying. Uh, Elise uh, banishes them, so they move to Plan B, where Elise calls Josh's mother over, and they explain to Josh that when he was a child, he also used to astral project. And uh, he was haunted by this ghost of a woman uh, who would keep showing up in photos that the mom would take of Josh. And that's actually what we saw in the opening uh, scene of this film. Uh, what do you think, man? I, I feel like I'm getting hit with like a lot of uh, new twists and turns that I'm trying to like take note of. But uh, were you feeling overwhelmed at all? A lot of information. Yeah. No, I wasn't feeling overwhelmed here. <laughs> Jump ahead to our Insidious 2 review and I'll be singing a different story. <laughs> but um, yeah, n- I guess it, I think it made sense to me at this point. Um, okay. Also, I'll shut up about this soon, but during that seance, she says, follow my voice, Dalton, which was essentially a head towards the light. Line In Poltergeist? From, oh. Yeah. Nice. Um, I, yeah, I was digesting. You were a little lost, though. Uh, I, I was just like doing this as like a math puzzle. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, so you used to astral project, but you forgot you astral projected, and now your son's been astral projecting this whole time, you didn't realize it. Um, and then this idea that like uh, if you stay out of your body long enough, then these g- ghosts and demons could potentially get into your body. Uh, so it just seemed like a lot of rules that I was starting to learn. The other thing that I was, trying, I was wondering is earlier the mother mentions like she was uh, sleeping, but she came and, and saw them and the house at night, right, when she saw the demon in there. So does mm-hmm. that mean the mother actual projects as a hobby? I think that these... Poof. Good question, man. So, like, the demons... How are the demons getting through? Like, they're not just in the further. They yeah. come into their world. Right. I think it's because they're... Shit, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe somehow through Josh's energy or something, like he's a portal into the world. Or okay. I mean, uh, Dalton's energy. Dalton. But there's a lot of things like that, though, where between this and the other one, if you start to poke <laughs> at the logic, it does not make sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I was, I was, I was, yeah, I, I was getting a little confused here. Uh, so Josh agrees now to try to actual project himself and uh, go to find his son Dalton in the further and sure enough, he finds himself there. He wanders around, and the further is kind of like this black and white, dark uh, space uh, that looks a lot, running a lot of like Stranger Things, like the Upside Down. It's words. very, yeah, very much like the Upside Down. I, yeah. I think we'd call it a liminal space in today's horror landscape. Okay. It's just like as a threshold, kind of like between two places, and you're kind of in the present space but not really it's, it's yeah. weird things are slightly different right yeah uh so he wanders around the space and he finds dalton who is trapped in this room and uh the red-faced demon is uh kind of like watching him but he's also busy sharpening his claws uh yep. when laughing to himself yeah <laughs> like on a on a big sharp like a, a wheel wheel what do you call this yeah. metal like sharpening wheel or something yeah so Josh helps Dalton escape, and they run back towards their bodies in the real world, but they're being pursued now by all these ghosts and demons from the further. Uh, Dalton makes it back to his body and awakens in the real world. Josh, however, gets sidetracked when he sees the ghost of the woman who haunted him as a kid, and uh, his body wakes up in the real world, and he appears normal, but Elise takes a picture of him after seeing He's got some dirty nails. She sees in the camera that Josh's body is actually now inhabited by the ghost of the woman figure. So uh, I guess this implies that Josh is still stuck in the further and his uh, body has been consumed or taken over by this woman ghost. The possessed Josh now strangles Elise before she can reveal this to anyone. And then the movie ends with Renee finding Elise's dead body and seeing this camera with Josh appearing as a ghost woman and realizing she's in for a sequel. Uh, oh, let me ask you something. How, how, uh, one of the rules that they mention here is you can astral project, but if you stay out of your body for too long, then you become susceptible to a ghost or a demon taking over your body. Uh, Josh was only out of his body for like a half hour. 
at, at the most. How did this uh, woman ghost jump into his body in that time? Good question. I mean, maybe it's because she's been following him ever since he was a kid and been like plotting and planning for this moment. Playing the long uh, game. <laughs> yeah, she's been playing the long game and and uh, just kind of stopped astral projecting when he was a child and now he's doing it again. So she was, they in the photos they show, she's getting closer and closer and closer. So she yeah. was like right there ready to pounce on this opportunity. And when it came, she... She, was she didn't miss. <laughs> Patience, man. It, it pays off. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> That's an endurance. Uh, what did you think of like this last sequence of like them in the further, the face-off with the uh, demon, which he was kind of distracted, and then like coming back and strangling Elise? I really loved the third act. I, once Josh goes into the further, I really enjoyed it. Like It's creepy. It's cool that we actually, I know it's weird to like try to define things that are undefinable. I know in other episodes I've argued it's better to keep things vague in supernatural movies and not have rules. But I, it makes for a cool sequence because he goes to this place. He's just seeing tons of weird, creepy shit. Like this woman who seems to be like shooting her family or something like that with a shotgun. Oh, yeah. She's all smiley and weird. Uh, it's just creepy, and it it basically lets Juan drop any like uh, storytelling or plot. yeah yeah like, yeah. Uh, forget all that other stuff. I I don't really want to bother with about the characters or whatever. Yeah, and and how the story actually works. And let me just do what's scary. It's almost like taking us back to that credit sequence where it's just like, oh, let's do some scary stuff. Right. But here it's like in the story, it makes sense what's happening and they can go all out with it. The CGI is dialed back and it's more like makeup effects and real actors. And it's creepy. I, I thought this was legitimately creepy. How about you? I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, the, the settings, the the ghosts that he sees and, and like how they're... Uh, presented and acting is pretty scary i think there's a lot of like great suspense building when he's like trying to unleash uh, dalton from that that chain uh, knowing the demons right up there and the the way it like looks at him uh yeah i i, I thought this the the further the stuff that happens in the further is really cool and, and like a fun way to end this film uh i did think like uh when he comes back it's kind of dumb how he's like confronting his uh, the, the the ghost from his childhood, he's like, right. "What do you want? What do you want?" <laughs> I feel like his acting doesn't really hold up there, uh, but uh, yeah. And, and then, like, I, I think it's cool they kind of ended with that cliffhanger of like he's not back and now he's stuck in the further. That was, was kind of a nice way to end the story. Did, did you like the cliffhanger? I did. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's even a post-credit scene of the old lady who follows Josh and who takes over Josh, like blowing out a candle. Oh man, I missed that. Okay. Nice. I don't know what that means. Maybe like the candle is Josh's soul and she's extinguished that and taken over or something. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. And, oh, you mentioned uh, the photos that we see of her, like when the mom is telling Josh about how when he was a kid, uh, this woman used to, like this ghost used to kind of follow him around. Uh, right. I, I thought that was a really funny scene. Uh, I mean, it, it looks really cool on the photos, but she's like, at first I thought it was like a camera trick. But it's like it's pretty clear, right? It's not like a subtle, <laughs> like ghosting. <laughs> that ah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> a woman in every photo is getting closer and closer yeah. to you, and she's dressed in a creepy black bride's dress or must be the wedding lighting. dress. Yeah, <laughs> cameras, cameras these days. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. That wasn't like subtle at all. That's that's kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, all right. So, yeah, what are your thoughts seeing this film uh, ten years later on? It, did it hold up, or did it work for you? I think it held up and almost worked for me better because, like, I now know as much as I'm ripping on Juan a little bit, maybe a lot, I guess. I now know his style. I know the vibe. I kind of know what to expect. Dead Silence specifically and Malignant like really taught me a lot about like what kind of filmmaker he is. And so I was able to just kind of accept some things where I'm like, well, that was hokey or like that dialogue was cheesy. Yeah. There's certain stuff where you're just like, is he joking? And <laughs> it's just like camp. It's campy. 
in its own way. And I didn't really see any of that. I just thought back in the day when I watched it, I was like, oh, it's just kind of stereotypical and generic. I think it's campy. Now, I don't know if it's intentionally campy or right? not. I can't even tell with him. And when we had the same thoughts on Malignant, where we're like, yeah. does he know what he's doing? Or is this a sincere <laughs> I know. like movie? I know. And uh, I think I think the answer is still pretty unclear to me. But <laughs> once yeah. I kind of like just let go of it and just enjoyed the ride, I really enjoyed the movie for all its shortcomings. I mean, it's a it's a scare factory. It's a roller coaster ride, and I kind of expected that coming into it this time. That was my memory of it, and it delivered on that, especially in the third act. Yeah. What were I, your thoughts? I, I completely agree, man. I, I think it's like a great popcorn film. It it's, has like appropriate number of like great jump scares, some good storytelling. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't uh, too put off by Patrick Wilson and Rose kept me pretty engaged. And uh, yeah, that third act, the, the scares that come into play, like you get, I like how it's like trickled throughout a little bit on the first act. And there's this element of psychological horror going on and then it just goes nuts in, in, in the end with the seance and uh, the further. So thought thought it was like a film that like amped itself up pretty nicely throughout um but you're right like there's a lot of weaknesses of ones that like we've come to know uh in his later films that you see here um like one thing that really bothered me throughout uh, did you notice like the whole film was like shot with like a green filter yeah yeah it's like i don't know if it's green or blue it's like very cold mm-hmm. and that's the visual styling of the second one as well it's very much this like cold almost electric blue electric maybe makes it sound too vibrant but yeah this cold blue with like pops of red oh Um, yeah sure right yep there are pops of red and uh yeah like a soft lighting in general like sometimes like from the windows uh and i've seen that like in some of his other films too and it sometimes gives it kind of like a lifetime movie feel where it's just like uh you, why'd you pick those colors? That's that's really interesting. And then uh, some kind of crazy, cringeworthy camera work. Uh, did you catch all like the panning of on the houses like every now and then? There is some cringeworthy camera work. That's an interesting thing to apply to camera work. But you're totally right. <laughs> right. I, I didn't I didn't catch the panning, but there were just some like really cheesy wide angle shots. Like when she wakes up from a nightmare and screams. It's oh like yeah, and it's like echoey. Weird, yeah, 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 and her scream echoes and echoes and echoes and this wide-angle shot of her sitting up in bed. It's just really weird. Yeah. And then when she finds the bloody handprint on Dalton's sheets, the camera is like, it's like slow motion when she sees that handprint, but it's a nearly static shot. Like, the camera isn't moving, and there's very little motion on camera. Like, yeah. she's like f- pulling the sheet a little bit. So it's like, slow motion movement of sheets like as she sees his handprint it's just like why did we do that like you're so weird james what's the goal yeah Yeah. a lot of stuff like from saw too that that comes over into this dead Uh, silence had stuff like that too it's just like i I don't know what you're doing with this camera man yeah yeah exactly he's got some interesting choices i think i don't know if it's like cheaply done where he's like trying to be really dramatic sometimes but it just like it doesn't work and uh, I, I wonder like back in 2010 if like uh, we would have like accepted it more versus like now with uh, yeah seeing it on like high definition or whatever like these things just stand out and look a lot worse yes yeah 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 it's funny because like I I really like this movie but I have a lot of like criticisms of it too <laughs> it's just kind of yeah it's almost like discussing like a sleepaway camp type movie or something where you're like, oh man, there's so many things that are <laughs> wrong with this movie, but it's pretty fun. Yeah, like, it's fun. I, th- I think the funness uh, holds up for sure. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what else were some of your big complaints about it? I think the dialogue can be very hokey and just like things that just, oh, it's like amateurish stuff that seems like it's maybe like, the right thing to write on paper but then when you hear it spoken it's like ugh. um <laughs> and then it's spoken by patrick wilson which is <laughs> yeah like before he goes into the further rose says like you've you've always been stronger than me you can do this just like oh man yeah. that's pretty generic like it doesn't really tie into like who they are as characters or what we've seen them go through so far right she's at one point expressing to the nurse taking care and teaching her of like how to deal with 
Dalton's coma. Like, uh, what does she say? Uh, I, like I, I sometimes it feels like the universe is like picking on me on purpose or something like that. Yeah. And the nurse goes, "Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick." She's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> "Yeah, Ugh, who is this nurse? We've I never know. met her. Like, <laughs> yeah. we don't. We've never seen much of Rose's toughness. Like, yeah, exactly. that line just was in there because it felt like it should have been. It yeah. just kind of amateurish with the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. There's some cheesy dialogue going on here for sure. Uh, what, uh, I feel like one thing you brought up throughout this is, uh, yeah, how unoriginal it is. Like, do you think that's a knock against it? Like, does it just feel like a blend of all these old movies that's being revitalized here? Or do you think James Wan adds something with the cheesy layer? I think he adds something with the cheesy layer. I also think it's a components of enough other movies that, and freshened up that it doesn't feel like oh my gosh, we've seen this before. I mean, we have. It, it's a genre film, but it feels fresh enough with the camera stylings and all the wanness that it's not like yeah. regurgitated copycat type stuff, in my opinion. But what do you sure. think? Uh, yeah, I think so too. But that, that's mostly because I don't remember a lot of those films. Like we, now, now that you brought up um, the uh, oh, Poltergeist, yeah, I'm just like, holy shit, how did I see that? And it, it just makes me wonder like how much of this is original. But yeah, I, I, I think you can mix and match movies and create something new. Yeah, so was nice. agreed. Um, one area where I felt there was another weakness was uh, the demon that like we see throughout other films like Paranormal Activity, The Conjuring and stuff. You get more lore about like who that demon is. Uh, but here all we like all we get is like it's it as a visual we don't really get any like of the background or the story of it did that bother you at all no not really because we get a whole lot of background in the next movie and i don't think it helps uh, yeah. um yeah i i prefer having it be a bit more vague than than to be explained okay. and have it be a questionable explanation you don't like the scenes um, like where the book comes out and they're like oh this is this demon and he comes from right this and he's yeah from i'm not a fan of that exactly sure but um, the lipstick demon, actually, he's got a good jump scare when they first see him, like, behind somebody. At the dining table? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think he's the scariest part of the movie, actually. And I think you almost see maybe too much of him, and he's, like, sharpening his claws and <laughs> listening to his music. Yeah. It takes away some of his scariness. I almost think some of the other ghouls that we see and some of the things we don't see are the scarier parts of this movie. Sure. You know, it's a rare combination. I feel like most movies, either you have like demonic entities or you have ghosts. Like how many times do you have both on, on, on the same movie? Is that common? Yeah. I don't know that. I think that the, the line between them has kind of vanished. Like, yeah. Okay. Who, who's to say anymore? And, and does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's getting along. Cool. Uh, anything other, any other background or should we jump to uh, the rating? I think we could jump to the rating unless you got anything else. Uh, no, I think uh, we had all the points I had. So um, how many uh, demons at the dinner table would you give this one? I give this four out of five demons at the dinner table. I think despite some lackluster dialogue and scripting, uh, one comes through in the third act and creates a movie that makes you afraid to turn out the lights after you're done watching. Ooh, nice, nice, cool. I Great. legit felt scared to turn out the lights. Like, I, w- I normally just, like, walk to the bathroom in the dark after I'm done with the movie, but I felt like I had to turn them on this time. Oh, nice. You got Brian turning on the lights in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't, like, scared, scared, but it was a little, like, I'm a little spooked out. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. How about you? Would, would you? what do you rate it? Uh, so yeah, I, I ended at three and a half, uh, demons at the dinner table and, uh, you know, similar to you, I think despite some cringe camera work and, and, uh, cheesy dialogue, uh, ultimately it's, it's a fun, uh, homage to haunted house films and films of older times. Uh, it's got a decent mix of jump scares and some haunting imagery that sticks with you, uh, uh, after you watch this one. But, um, yeah, ultimately I'm, I, I don't know if I would say it brought anything like new or exciting. Uh, it was just kind of like a fun remix, I guess, for me. Do you think this is, or The Conjuring is better? I think The Conjuring is a little bit of a strong story. I feel like some of that cheesy dialogue is gone. The camera work is better. And yeah, I think it's what you said earlier, the, the chemistry between the two main characters works a lot better. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I rated this higher than The Conjuring. I'm not sure if I trust myself with that or not. Um, it might be, I feel like a 3.5 might be the more accurate rating, but I think that 
The Conjuring is a more polished movie for sure. But I think this one is a bit more scary and a bit more fun. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. There's, there's so much uh, overlap between these two movies. You, both are about a family in a new house, bunch of kids. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Patrick Wilson. Yeah, Patrick Wilson doing this John Leonetti. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Joseph Bashara. I know. The whole gang. <laughs> the whole gang's back. <laughs> Lee Winnell didn't, uh, wasn't attached there, was he? To The Conjuring? You know, I don't think he was involved in that one in any mm. capacity. That's surprising. Do you know, is he going to be part of the new Insidious? Um, I would guess he's a producer, but I'm not sure. Okay, cool. So oh. Who knows, he might come back as, a, as his character, too, one of the... Uh, Text. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that would be yeah. It's one of the texts, right? Uh, the, uh, he won. Uh, oh, one thing I forgot to ask you: Where did the rest of the kids go at the end of the movie? Oh my god, the kids are just like, <laughs> how many are there? Where yeah. are they? <laughs> Where like, there's, are they now? Yeah, there's exactly. Dalton and his bigger brother Foster, and then a little sister Callie, who's a baby. So yeah, and it, um, they'll they'll like disappear at the end. Yeah, I don't know where they were. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, anything else? That's all I got. Cool. Well, excited to review the sequel with you. Um, but that's going to wrap up our discussion on Insidious. If you enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's going to help other people find our show. And we always welcome the feedback. If you want to join our discussion, you can find our social links on horrormovieclub.com. Or you can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We'll announce next week's movie on Facebook and Instagram in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord, where we're chatting with a few listeners and other horror fans. You can find the link to that on our website. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can find her on Etsy.com, as well as some merchandise for our show. And until next time, if you're planning to go hopping around uh, through Astral Projection in the further, make sure you get Brian to blow some smoke up your ass before you go so you can follow that trail back to your body and not get lost out there <laughs> oh my gosh i'm so lucky there's been smoke coming up <laughs> gently dribbling out of my ass the whole way i, I can know. just follow this trail <laughs> leads me right back home <laughs> 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 oh, uh, you're welcome <laughs>